I got up here in the first service and I um, was clearing the clutter off of the uh, the pulpit and uh, trying to order my mind. And someone out in the middle of the congregation said, Good morning! And I couldn't tell if he was trying to urge me to get on with it or if this is just a very friendly place. But uh, I think it's the latter. Would you turn with me, please, to the 10th chapter of Mark? And uh, I would like to begin reading with verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those others who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus, however, called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man, which is his messianic title, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus and his disciples were on the road to Jerusalem. He clearly foresaw the cross, and he resolutely set his face to go to the city and die. For the third time, he predicts his death. Here, however, there are three new elements that are added. The first is that he would die in Jerusalem, which would be, uh, be a shocker for them. Jerusalem was the holy city. It was the city where the temple was located. It was where the sacrifices were offered. It was a very special place. It was the place where Messiah, the Son of Man, would manifest himself. So they were amazed. The second thing he tells us is that the Jews would turn their Messiah over to the Gentiles who would kill him. That's a new thought, and additionally a shocking thought that Israel would turn her king over to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would try him and kill him. 
And the third thing that, uh, that we're told is that not only would he die, but he would be terribly humiliated. They would spit on him. They would flog him. He would be very unjustly treated. He would be ridiculed and scorned and misunderstood. Our Lord was up in front leading the way, and I get the impression that he was dogged in his determination to go to Jesus, walking briskly toward the city. The disciples were lagging behind and were told that they were both surprised, that is, surprised that he would go to Jerusalem when there was so much antagonism and hostility toward, uh, directed toward him. And secondly, they were afraid. They were afraid. And it struck me as I read through this uh, short paragraph this past week that this is a little picture of, of the spiritual life. Our Lord is up ahead leading us into death. Uh, recall the passage that uh, we read earlier. We're called upon to follow him, which means we have to take up our cross daily and die. Die to our dreams and our most cherished ambitions, our hopes, our desires for our families, for our marriages, for our children, for our businesses, for our ministries, for our health. Every day we have to face into uh, some something uh, that uh, calls upon us to, to lay down our, our life. It's not uh, that uh, every event is that way, but it just seems to be, it seems to be continuous. And it's hard. It's difficult. No one wants to die. We have the same uh, reaction that the apostles had. We're surprised. Though Peter tells us, don't uh, be surprised that the fiery trial is to try you. Uh, at the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you, but rejoice in that you are a partaker of Christ's suffering. So we shouldn't be surprised. But we are. And we are also fearful. We're afraid to meet these circumstances that call us to lay down our lives. We don't, we don't like that. But uh, we're still uh, following. We're following on. As the writer of Hebrews puts it of our Lord, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has seated himself now on the right hand of the Father. See, there are two things that keep us going. One is the grace that God gives us along the way. And we can face those moments of dying with the joy and with confidence because uh, he gives everything that we need to face into them. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Savior's full giving has only begun. He gives, and He gives, and He gives. And then uh, secondly on ahead is this prospect of glory, eternal fellowship with the Father, and eternal life. We know that this world is not our home, that we're destined for, for glory. That's, that's the goal. And uh, we're just passing through this, uh, this, uh, this world. And even though we're pummeled and pounded and at times desperately hurt, we know that in the end, as the Negro spiritual uh, puts it, this world is not going to trouble us no more. And that's our, that's our glorious prospect. Now, uh, 
when the disciples heard Jesus talk about Jerusalem and, and his going to Jerusalem, it triggered in their mind a, a, a thought. Because they knew that the Son of Man would be manifest in his glory in Jerusalem. They didn't understand all that would occur there. They didn't understand his teaching about uh, uh, his death and his suffering and his humiliation. But they knew that something cataclysmic, something cosmic would happen there because he had predicted his resurrection. And so they anticipated the fact that Jesus would go to the holy city and in some way he would manifest himself as Israel's uh, Messiah. And uh, that triggered in their mind this thought of being seated on his right and on his left, being uh, given positions of, of honor and responsibility and authority within the kingdom. And that's why they came to Jesus with this request. Now Matthew tells us they also came with their mother. And uh, they said to Jesus, we want you to give us whatever we ask. Now that's a very dangerous question. And uh, when, uh, when my grandchildren come, one of them comes and says, Papa, will you, will you do what I ask you to do? Uh, my question is, well, what is it that you would like for me to do? Uh, because no one likes to respond to an open-ended question like that. And so our Lord said, what is it that you want me to do? And James and John said, we want a position of, of authority in the kingdom. One of us on your right side, that's the place of higher uh, responsibility and intimacy, and uh, one on the left side. Now, uh, a lot of ink has been spilled over this uh, particular text, and most uh, most commentators have the same attitude toward the disciples' question that the disciples had. They, they get real indignant. But... Uh, I think, they're, I think they're questioning their motives. We don't know what their motives were. Uh, we, there are several things I think we need to understand about this, uh, this request. One is that it is not wrong to want to be great in the kingdom of God. It's always wrong to want great things for ourselves, to want a position of prominence so we'll be noticed and appreciated and acclaimed. Uh, Jeremiah says, uh, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Um, it's not right to want personal glory, but there is nothing wrong with wanting to do something great within the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that if, uh, if someone aspires to the office of overseer, he seeks a noble task. It's a noble ambition that you have to want to be greatly used. Uh, within the sphere of, of the kingdom kingdom of God. And I hope that's your prayer. It certainly is mine. And many times during my life, uh, I've prayed that God would use me in some great uh, way within the kingdom, not, not uh, in a position of prominence, but I want to touch lives and I want to influence people and I want people to come to Christ and grow in that relationship and I want to be able to use my gifts to the fullest. And, and I hope that that's your prayer as well. Not one of us wants to... Uh, to, to miss out somehow and not be in the mainstream. We, we want to be where God can use us. That's a legitimate, a legitimate request. It's also good to note that our Lord himself did not rebuke the apostles for this request. As a matter of fact, he seems to commend it. And uh, thirdly, we need to know that just prior to this request, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus had said to the apostles that you will sit on 12 thrones ruling the tribes of Israel. 
So uh, these men were simply taking Jesus at his word. He promised that they would have a position of, of authority and responsibility. And furthermore, they wanted that intimacy with the Lord that's indicated in this question. They, they, they wanted to sit, this request. They wanted to sit close, close to him, near to him, near to his heart. And uh, so for myself, I don't think there was, there's anything at all wrong with this request. I think it's a, it was a noble, uh, a noble request. But uh, what Jesus goes on to say is this. I don't think that you understand the cost. If you aspire to be great in the kingdom of God, it will cost you dearly. And uh, then he spells out the elements of greatness. It's a kind of a job description. These are the things that, that will be true, must be true of you, if you want to be great. The first is suffering. If you want to be great, you will suffer. Of course, everybody suffers. No one is immune. But there is a, a kind of special hurt, I think, and pain that uh, seems to fall upon people who want to be greatly used of, of uh, God. Uh, Jesus describes it, uh, that suffering here in terms of two metaphors, a cup which they must drink and a baptism into which they must be immersed. And he ties in those two metaphors with his own death, the cup that he would drink, and the baptism with which he would be baptized. And both mean the same thing. He's referring to the cross and the pain and the scoffing and the scorn and the hurt and the humiliation and the awfulness of that, of that cross. And uh, I think that uh, the cup symbolizes what life hands to us, those circumstances in, in life that hurt us and cut us. To the, to the core. Uh, the cup signifies that suffering that we have to drink to the, to the dregs, all the way to the bitter bottom. And uh, baptism symbolizes that immersion where we are totally engulfed in, in the difficulties of, of life. And if we're going to follow our Lord, we have to understand, as these disciples had to understand, that this is our cup and this is our baptism uh, as well. Now, there are three, th- uh, three reasons why I think uh, we undergo suffering. The first is that it enables us to know God in a way that we could never otherwise know Him. The older I get, the more comfortable I become with the means which God uses to uh, bring us into conformity with His character. I used to think that God was sometimes very hard and very harsh, but I've come to see something of, of the tenderness of his heart. And though sometimes though the circumstances of life are very harsh and very difficult, the purpose of it all is to, is to bring us into a more intimate relationship with him than we could ever experience otherwise. That's why we get hurt. That's why your ministries are hard. That's why parenting sometimes becomes so difficult. That's why God brings into our lives certain difficult people that, that we have to face into and we struggle and and we sometimes uh, feel desperate. And, and yet what that does is draw us, draw us close to the heart of God. He becomes so much more important to us. And we see Him in a way that we've never seen Him before. I have over the last week or two been reading through the book of Job. And in many ways that's a very shocking book. I, I, when I started reading it this time, I, it occurred to me as I read through the first chapter that a non-Christian or someone uh, not familiar with the book of Job would be terribly offended by the first two chapters. 
I think this is the impression that we'd have, that they would have. And I don't mean to be irreverent, but I'm just trying to think like, like uh, most newcomers to the Bible would think. Uh, Satan appears before God, and God uh, says to Satan, so what, what have you been up to lately? And Satan says, oh, you know, I'm here, here and there, trying to deceive and devour and destroy and make life miserable for people. And, and God says, uh, well, have you uh, tried out your malice and mischief yet on my servant Job? And Satan says, well, I, I can't. You've, you've got him protected. He's, he's hedged in. You, you take away the, his defenses and uh, let, me, uh, let, me, let me have at him and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, all right, uh, we've got a bet here. Uh, I'll bet Job's life that you can't do that. And we read through that and we, you know, it's almost like two gentlemen gamblers. You know, it's sort of a cynical bet that they, that they set up between themselves. And it's awful, but you, you read on into the, the book and you begin to see what's going on. Dear old Job loses everything. He loses his business and he loses his family and he loses his health and he loses his wife she turns against him and he loses his friends and he doesn't have anybody but God everybody is trying to tell him that the problem is he's sinful it's his fault and uh, and in the end God answers all of his detractors and he says listen to me you, you don't know what you're talking about this whole this whole ordeal that Job is going through has tenderized his heart made him more sensitive has drawn him closer to my heart. And, and Job says at the end of, of, the, of the story, I've heard of God. Now I see you. Now I see you. And he was given back his family. But for me, that's in fact, he was given back his wealth and all that he had lost uh, manifold. But that's a, that's a small change of the story. The real value of what happened to, to Job was that he saw God as he had never seen him before. And I'll tell you, I've seen some of you men and women go through these hard marriages where you have stuck it out and you've tried to make it go. And for one reason or another, it just would not go. And you were, you were uh, terribly hurt, hurt to the core through that experience. And you, you have a love for God and an understanding of God and a maturity of your faith that you wouldn't trade for anything. I've had people tell me, uh, I, I would not want to go through this experience for for a million dollars, but I wouldn't take a million dollars for the experience. It's made out of me what I always wanted to be. And these are the people that are able to help others. Uh, as uh, Chuck Swindoll is fond of saying, you cannot help others greatly until you have been hurt greatly. And uh, there is a depth of understanding of the character of God that can only come through the hurts and the hassles and the, and the batterings that we take in life. So that's the first reason we have to suffer, so we get to know God in a way we could not otherwise know Him. The other, the second reason, is that it really does change our character. As James puts it, uh, when, so we should count it all joy when we fall into various trials. In other words, the important thing is to accept that, that joy, or accept that, uh, that suffering with joy, uh, with a, an understanding of God's loving heart that's behind it and a confidence that God is going to use that in some way to perfect us. And he says the result of, the, of that is, we, is that we become more dogged in our faith and our character begins to change. We become more gracious and more kindly and more loving and more sensitive to others. 
and more courageous and better able to face the other, uh, the other buffetings of, uh, uh, of life. It's what happened to our Lord, and it will happen to us. The writer of Hebrews says that even our Lord was perfected through suffering. In uh, Hebrews 2.10, says, In bringing many sons into glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of our salvation mature through suffering. Now, I don't fully understand what the writer means because our Lord was, was perfect in his character, but yet there was a maturing in his ministry and a maturing in his life that could only come through suffering. And that's why he's such a tender high priest. That's why uh, in, uh, even now he has a human heart. He understands. You see, he has been tested and tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And therefore he is touched by the feelings of our of our weakness. He's not put off by our sin and our failure and our struggles and our inability to perform. He understands because he has been a man. He understands what it means to have to endure these uh, these hard times. Paul has an interesting exposition of this idea in 2 Corinthians 4. I don't have time this morning to turn to that passage, but Paul puts it like this. He's talking about the wonderful treasure that we have, which is Christ in us, the beauty of Christ being and dwelling us. That's uh, as I've said before, the Christian life is not our Lord over here someplace. It's, it's here. Uh, he indwells us. It's the hope of glory within us. And uh, Paul says, we have this treasure in, in earthen vessels, uh, in uh, clay pots. That's, that's the mystery of, of Christianity. It's, it's the deity of Christ, the divinity of Christ indwelling our humanity. A lot of figures that are used in the Bible for our humanity. Isaiah, as we'll be seeing in a few weeks, says that we're all grass. We're all weak and transient. We're all a bunch of failures. We're a bunch of incompetence. Let's face it. But what, what makes life tolerable for us is the fact that we have this treasure, the indwelling Christ within. And so Paul says we get knocked down, but we're never knocked out. He says we despair at times, but we never give up. We're down, but we're never out. Because uh, uh, we have this, uh, this indwelling strength. And then Paul says, we're always being given over to death in order that the life of Christ may be manifest within us. What he means is that the batterings of life, the hurts that we take, crush the earthen vessel so that more and more of Christ is seen within us. More of his beauty is, uh, is displayed. And uh, then he ends his discussion of that, uh, that process by saying, As death works in us, so life works in you. In other words, as we're hurt and more of Christ is seen in us, others see the beauty of Christ and they're drawn to him. And uh, we begin to have an effect upon them that we could not uh, otherwise have. Our influence is not shallow. Uh, it's profound. Uh, one of my favorite uh, writers is uh, Samuel Rutherford, 17th uh, century uh, Scottish covenanter, tough, rugged old man. I just love to, to read his, uh, his writings. Most of his writings come down to us in the form of letters that were, that were written after he was banished from his pulpit by uh, the Church of England back in the 17th century. He's one of the dissenters. And uh, uh, his letters are so tender. They're so compassionate. When you read them, you sense that uh, here's a man who understands tremendous empathy and sympathy for people in their, in their struggles and in their pain. 
And uh, just this, this last week, I uh, was reading a book, or a portion of a book by Elizabeth Elliot, in which she quotes one of his letters. And it goes something like this. He's speaking to a young woman who had lost her child, which was, um, you know, that, that's, that was a very real possibility in the 17th century. A lot of the, the infant mortality rate was very high. And uh, this was a young woman who was grieving over the loss of her baby. And he wrote to her, and he said, He, that is, uh, uh, God, commands you to weep. And that princely one took up to heaven with him a man's heart to be a compassionate high priest. The cup ye drink was at the lip of sweet Jesus, and he drank of it. And I was in your condition. I had but two children, and both are now dead. And I think of people in our congregation who have lost children and who have lost husbands and fathers and mothers and who have lost uh, their businesses and life has been really hard, really tough for them. And uh, I, I see them beginning to exhibit more and more of the grace of Christ in their lives and they're able to touch other people profoundly. Now, that process is not automatic. Suffering can also make you bitter. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot in her book points out that uh, being born without arms does not uh, uh, necessarily make you holy. But being born without arms and accepting it with joy will uh, result in a deeper knowledge of God and a growth in grace that will enable you to, to touch uh, profoundly the hearts and the lives of, of others. And so Jesus asks us, as he asked the disciples, can you take it? Can you accept the cup? Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which he, he was baptized? He went first, you see. He never, he never asks anything of us that he does not first ask of himself. He's been through it. He's been through the worst of life. He's experienced far more than any of us will ever experience. And, and he says to the disciples and he says to us, can you take it? Can you handle that? Are you willing to accept that as part and parcel of, of being greatly used of, of, uh, of God? And the disciples say, we can, we can. Now, I don't think this was a blast of egotism. I think they were serious. They, they were, at this point, they didn't know what it would entail, as we don't. But uh, they were willing to submit uh, to God's will. And uh, they did taste the cup. They were baptized with, with the same baptism of Jesus. Um, James himself was beheaded just a few months after Jesus uttered these words. And John had a, a perhaps a more difficult death, a long, lengthy, enduring death. He was exiled to the barren island of Patmos, separated from his family and friends, and died in the loneliness of, of that terrible place. They, uh, they did indeed drink the cup. And Jesus says to us, are we willing? Are you willing? Am I willing to drink this cup? It's, it's part and parcel of being greatly used of God. Now, the, the second uh, element uh, which he addresses here is that of submission to the will of God. Notice how he puts it. He, uh, he says uh, in his humanity that he was not uh, one who dispensed uh, these offices he says, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Uh, 
God is the one who places us where he wants us to be. It may be a position of prominence. We should never seek prominence. Again, Jeremiah said, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. We should rather seek obscurity. Uh, it occurred to me one day that, uh, that upward mobility is really not the Christian way. If anything, downward mobility is the Christian way. And if you want a, 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 the perfect example of that, it's our Lord who emptied himself of his prerogatives as God, his equality uh, in standing and position and office and authority with God, and he became a man. And uh, he wasn't at all prominent he is today. His name is known around the world. But in his day, he uh, lived, he grew up and lived and ministered in a very obscure place. No one ever heard of Israel. It was a backwater. And uh, he was just an unknown uh, street preacher. Uh, what, uh, what humiliation. We don't think of God humbling himself. But uh, it's not generally one of the attributes of God that we talk about. But here is a clear case of downward of mobility. Now, it may be that God will thrust some of you into a position of prominence. You may be another Elizabeth Elliot or, or Billy Graham or someone of, of that stature, but uh, not necessarily. Not necessarily. God may prefer to have you labor on in some obscure place where no one sees you, no one knows you, no one is aware of your existence, no one extols your ministry, no one talks about you, no one writes you up in Christianity today. He may even put you in his pocket for a while. Uh, but uh, as Carolyn said to me this last week, we were talking about this principle. And when I said something about God uh, putting us in our, in our pockets, she said, yeah, but it's his breast pocket. And uh, that's what we need to know. So he may set us aside, but he hasn't forgotten us. Uh, we're very much on his mind and on his heart. He cares. He knows. And it's his delight to again uh, put us back to his to his intended purpose. But again, see, it may not be something that uh, uh, that's acknowledged or known. It may be a quiet place. One of my favorite poems, the one which I quoted before, is this uh, poem that Ray used, Ray Stebbin used to quote. I, I don't know the source of it. Father, where shall I work today? And my love flowed warm and free. He pointed out a tiny spot and said, "Tend that place for me." I answered him quickly. Oh, no, not that. Why, no one would ever see, no matter how well my work was done. Not that little place for me. Then wasn't stern. He answered me tenderly. Nazareth was a little place. And so was Galilee. So that's the second element in, uh, in greatness. If you want to be great, you will suffer. If you want to be great, uh, you will uh, need to submit yourself to the will of God, his place within the kingdom. And third, uh, as he describes greatness within the kingdom, it involves servitude. Uh, he puts it uh, in this way. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. The model of leadership in Jesus' day was uh, the corporate model, bossing and demanding and controlling and ruling and, and tyrannizing and patronizing people and dispensing favors to those that were, uh, that were gracious to those in positions of, of leadership. And uh, certainly was not characteristic of our Lord. He was a secondary, self-sacrificing figure.
never bossed anyone around, never demanded, never tyrannized people. As a matter of fact, his symbol is that of a wash basin and a, and a towel and a slave down on his knees, crawling around on the, the hard floor of the upper room, washing the feet of the disciples. That's what servitude means. Now, we need to understand what servitude is. It is not being a doormat. It is not being a rug. It doesn't mean that we have round heels, that we're pushovers. It doesn't mean that uh, we're Casper milk toast and we have no spine and we cannot stand for what we know and believe to be, to be true. It simply means that we serve others for their spiritual good. See how Jesus puts it here? He said, even as the Son of Man came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. It's so others can be set free. It's so they can be redeemed. We cannot make atonement as Jesus did, but we can serve others so that they enter into the fullness of Christ. See, that's what governs our servanthood. That's why sometimes we have to say, no, we can't serve because it's not good for that for that person. But if we have that in the back of our mind, that we are his, your servants for Christ's sake, then we can serve acceptably. Some people serve to manipulate. They feel if they serve enough that the other people will serve back. That's not necessarily true. My experience is that uh, people who try to serve that way very often get bitter and and, uh, very unhappy because the people don't reciprocate. Very often that's an unrequited uh, servanthood. Nor should we serve just because uh, it feels good to serve. Some people, uh, uh, they get their sense of worth from being a servant, being a suffering servant. No, uh, that's, that's not our motivation. As T.S. Eliot said, the highest reason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Uh, the right reason is to serve others so that they will come into their own and become everything that God intended them to become. Uh, that's true in the church. Um, the leaders in the church are to lead according to the example of Christ. We have to go back to what Jesus said and take it seriously. He said, the, the Gentiles rule this way, but it must not be so among you. Some of his strongest words, it must not be so among you. It is sin to dominate and tyrannize uh, other people. That is not leadership. Our leadership in the church, the elders, the men and women who serve in various leadership capacities within the church, we we need to, to model the example of Christ with his little bowl of soapy water and, and the towel over his arm, gird like a servant, caring and serving and ministering to other people. The only authoritative word we have is the word of Scripture. There we can we can speak with confidence, but where the Scriptures have not spoken, we must not speak. I always cringe when I hear of pastors or leaders in churches who tell people where they're to live and, and how they're to make their money and, and where they're to spend their money and, and issues that have nothing whatever to do with Scripture. That's not leadership, see. That's tyranny. It's domination. And uh, our leadership must be uh, after the model of Christ. Uh, the other sphere of activity that I think of is the home. See, again, uh, the leadership 
of the husband in the home is to be a leadership after the example of Christ. Some men, unfortunately, confuse uh, uh, the leadership of a husband in a home with male domination, and they think that this means making all the decisions. And, and uh, because they're stronger, intimidating their wives into obedience and, and uh, treating their wives as though they don't have a brain in their head, treating them like little children and controlling them and controlling all the money and controlling the time and efforts and activities of their wives. That's sinful. I don't know how else to put it. It's sinful. That's not the model that Jesus himself established. Uh, he was a leader in every sense of a word, but he was a loving kindly, ministering, serving leader. And uh, that is the pattern that we're called upon uh, to, uh, to apply within our, within our homes. Now, uh, this is a job description for greatness. You want to be great? Great. We, it's a good thing to be great uh, in the kingdom of God, to use our gifts and our abilities and our strength and our powers and our positions of leadership in order to to uh, minister to other people, see them grow into full maturity in Christ. Wonderful ambition. But we need to understand that uh, if you're going to be great within the kingdom, it will entail suffering. There's no way around it. And uh, we need to face into every hard thing that comes our way with that attitude of acceptance and joy and seeing that this is God's will for us to make us what he intends us to be, to soften our hearts, to soften our faces, to give us a wisdom that we could not otherwise uh, enjoy. And then secondly, it will involve submission to the will of God. There will be uh, times when we're placed into situations that are less than comfortable and less than desirable. And third, it does uh, entail an attitude of, of servanthood, ministering, serving, not lording it over others, but caring for them as, as a tender and good, good shepherd cares for, uh, for his sheep. Now, um, I would like to close by having you turn to Revelation 5. Revelation is one of those books that, uh, <clears throat> this will just take a second, that spooks people. I personally do not find the main themes of Revelation that hard to discern. Some of the symbols uh, are difficult to interpret, but the main ideas are all too clear. And here in chapter 5, you see one sitting on a throne, and he has in his hand a scroll written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. The scroll, uh, we find as we read on into the book, is, is really, uh, it's history. His story. God is the one who writes history. He's sovereign. And uh, history is written fully by God. That's why there's no, there's no space to add anything. No human hand can, can add anything to this uh, scroll. It's written on the front and the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. That is, it is, uh, it is sealed up so that no one can open it. And this is what uh, raises the hue and cry. The question is asked, who can open this seal? Who can unfold history to us? Who can bring about the ultimate destiny which God has promised to all of us? Who's worthy to open the seal, and the seals? And uh, the answer comes back, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, don't weep. John had, began, had begun to weep because there was no one on, in heaven or on earth or under the earth who could open the scroll. 
And uh, the elders said, don't weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. And we wait for the lion to appear. And uh, the gates fly open and we expect this great, uh, mighty, roaring, tawny uh, uh, beast to rush into the arena and to manifest himself in his power. But uh, John looks again and notice what he sees. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Now that's the example of leadership for us, and that's a good way of summing up what Jesus had to say in Mark chapter 10. We have to remember that God was once a lamb, and that's how he triumphed. It wasn't through, uh, through raw power and through exercising the authority that he had as God. It was through that gentle servanthood, the caring shepherd spirit. He was the suffering servant who suffered as no one has ever suffered before or will ever suffer again in order that he might uh, bring redemption to us. And he is the pattern for us of greatness. Now I'd like to ask you to stand and I'm going to have Stan come back up and just sing again that song we sang just before we began to look at this, uh, this passage.